You are listening to Innovate at Open, stories from the cutting edge of technology innovation rooted in open source software and collaborative processes. I'm your host, Gordon Half. Hi, everyone. This is Gordon Half, technology evangelist with Red Hat, here for another edition of Innovate at Open. And I'm particularly excited to have with me today Brian Bellendorf, who is the executive director of the Hyperledger Foundation, but also has a rather illustrious history in open source. Many of people in this call probably know who you are, Brian, but could you give us the Reader's Digest version, assuming talking about Reader's Digest isn't a complete anachronism at this point? <laughs> I'm old enough to get the reference, um, but uh, I'm sure many people won't. Um, yeah, so... Uh, Brian Bellendorf, as you mentioned, executive director of Hyperledger, which is actually a part of the Linux Foundation. The Linux Foundation has its own illustrious history. I've I've only joined it um, about three years ago to do this project, but obviously it's been around since 2000, trying to serve the needs of the Linux ecosystem, both the developers and the and the companies around uh, it. But then starting about six, seven years ago, expanding into a whole bunch of related technology domains, cloud computing, software-defined networking, and with Hyperledger blockchain technology. My background, I, I have done a bunch of different things. I'm perhaps most known for being one of the co-founders of the Apache project, which became the Apache Software Foundation, and then serving as its president for the first couple years. That was always a, a night gig. It was never a paid gig, um, as as is true for almost everybody involved with Apache. It's 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 an entirely volunteer gig. My day job is varied from um, starting one of the first website design companies called Organic, starting a company called CollabNet, which you could think of as maybe GitHub, um, but perhaps two or three generations too early. <laughs> um, but we did did kick out the Subversion project, or I mean, to get that started up and 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 brought that over into Apache, that kind of thing. Um, I've also served as CTO for the World Economic Forum for a couple of years. I was based in Geneva. That was a very fun and very different kind of organization. Um, I worked in the White House for about a year and then Department of Health and Human Services for a year. But mostly I've been either starting companies or working for open source foundations um, in one form or another. You usually volunteer. Um, the Linux Foundation is the first time I've actually worked for a paycheck for an open source organization. And it's really fun. Um, so lots of different things. Oh, and I, I guess I put the first ad banner online and I've been apologizing for that ever since. Please don't hold it against me. But uh, uh, yeah, had a lot of fun in my career. So, Brian, I tend to let the topics in these podcasts kind of wonder where they want to go. I do try and stay somewhat centered in this new podcast in the intersection of innovation and open source. To what degree did inventing new and better things influence you early on with Apache versus user freedoms, having an alternative to big vendors and that kind of thing? The internet culture in 1990s, right, it, you know, was definitely one of, you know, first off, most people didn't know about it, didn't know what it was going to be. I think there was uh, amongst um, uh, the people who were online uh, a real conviction that, no, this is bigger than AOL, this is bigger than CompuServe, this is bigger than telephones even, right? This is something that will be the substrate for society in, in the long term. It may be differing opinions on how quickly that would arrive, um, but 
probably not that much difference in opinion on if it would arrive. Uh, I, there was this real deep conviction that we were onto something and, and it was going to be big, but a, a, a lot of concern at the same time because you know the the desktop computing world at that time was maybe ninety six percent Microsoft Windows, right? Um, we, we might have had a more beneficent view of technology companies at that moment. Um, you know, we still thought of them as kind of leading, leading the fight for individual empowerment, you know, the whole Apple think different campaign, that sort of thing. We kind of saw tech companies as the good guys, so to speak. Um, but I think there was still a concern that as the web grew, that it would lose its, its character and its soul as this kind of funky domain, very flat space, supportive of, you know, freedoms of speech, freedoms of thought, freedoms of association that were completely novel, right, to us at the time, that now we kind of take for granted or even we found we have found weaponized against us. <laughs> um, so um, what, what I think drove the founders of Apache early on were, was this kind of two things. One, a very pragmatic um, base. You know, I was working at Wired Magazine, working building this um, web company organic, and we simply needed a better web server and, and iteratively improving upon the NCSA web server was just easier and certainly a lot cheaper than um, buying Netscape's uh, uh, commercial web server or you know, thinking about IIS or any of the, the other commercial options at the time. So there is this pragmatic thing, which was, this is just simpler. This feels easier. It's nice to have other people out there who can review my code and work together with, but none of us really wanted to be full-time web server developers. That kind of seemed boring in a way. You know, we were having much more fun building cool websites. But the second was the, this idealistic notion, you know, that tapped into that zeitgeist in the, in the 90s. But it was a bit of, you know, we're, we're, this is a printing press. We can we can help people publish their their own blogs, help people publish their their own websites, and get as much content liberated as possible and digitized as possible by getting this out there. And that was kind of the the, the web movement. But in particular, we felt it would be important to make sure that the the printing presses remained in the hands of the people, um, and that everybody could use this stuff for free, um, and that it didn't become a single vendor web the way that it felt like the desktop had had kind of collapsed to a single vendor. And so that's that that dual mentality, the pragmatic and the idealistic, um, I think was a, a driver for Apache. I don't know that there was a dri same kind of driver for the Free Software Foundation. That was more Stallman's moral, <laughs> I, I, you know, the indignity of having his code proprietarized in the mid-80s and going, never again, right? Um, and, and I'm certainly sympathetic to the moral worldview um, that, you know, when you have software inside of every car, every doorknob, every thermostat, that pretty soon, you know, access to source code and the ability to modify it um, is, is a uh, starts to verge on a human right. I totally get that worldview. But I think there were more pragmatic and uh, and more um, operational kind of benefits that, that were key to Apache growing and I, I'd say argue, arguably the rest of the open source world. But I carry that forward to today, you know, with, with Hyperledger, you know, one thing that pulled me in and got me excited was this notion that there are some really important problems we can solve with distributed systems, with distributed ledgers and smart contract techniques. It wasn't programmable money. It wasn't regulatory arbitrage. It wasn't many of the things people associate with cryptocurrencies that, that were was the driver here. It was the sense that the digitalization of society had led to a future that looked a lot more like big central systems. You know, Everyone loves to make fun of them, but Uber and PayPal and that sort of thing, not that they're the boogeyman necessarily, but like that architecture of 
of all of us going through central services to connect with each other, it was a very un-internet kind of worldview, but it seemed to be the trend line we were on. And so blockchain technology seemed urgent to get involved in um, that lined up with these idealistic and pragmatic impulses that, I, that I've had and I think other people in open source have had. And that's, that's kind of why I've dedicated the last three years of my life to it. I will talk more about blockchain in just a second, but right before that, I'd like to talk a little bit about foundations. Foundations are a big thing these days in the open source world. Some will argue maybe they're too big a thing in the open source world. But what was your thinking in with the Apache Software Foundation initially in terms of what your priorities were and how you've seen the foundation landscape evolve over the years? In 1998, Apache had been around for three years. And uh, in those three years, it had grown by, you know, Netcraft, uh, the, the company that does this like survey of the web once a month by Net, Netcraft's measure to be something like 70% market share, which seems weird to uh, use air quotes around market share because no one was paying any money for Apache. But in terms of uh, installed base, that's 70% of the web was running on top of Apache HTTPD, right? Which was pretty awesome. But it was still being built by a group of people whose only connection to each other was that they were both, they were all on an email mailing list, uh, all had, you know, commit privs to a CVS repository, uh, all had shell on a um, Unix box that I maintained off of Wired's internet connection, <laughs> um, and otherwise had no formalism between us. And in a way that was liberating, in a way we were like, yeah, you know, we don't need overhead, we don't need stuffy bureaucrats, and uh, we do want process, you know, because, and we had developed um, kind of a sense of how to work together because we want the efficiency that comes from having a whole, you know, not having to rehash the same arguments over and over or having lack of clarity about who do, who does what. Um, but it was fundamentally about transparency and, and an open door to anybody to get involved. And, and I think there was a healthy degree of skepticism that a foundation or any sort of corporate structure would, um, you know, you know, would have the same advantage. Certainly, we didn't want to incorporate as a for-profit company because then you get into thorny questions of how much do you pay people, how much equity share do they have, all that kind of stuff. When we all had our own agendas and and startup businesses, anyways. But it was when you know we started to see more and more people using it, asking harder and harder questions, and we'd always defer to other people for to provide support. But there were these thorny questions around: Well, what happens if? somebody who owned a patent decided to file a patent lawsuit against the developers of Apache and wanted something as simple and modest as a dollar per copy, right? Well, they if they won and, and you know, given patent laws, you know, they certainly could win, you know, they'd seek the, those tens or hundreds of millions of dollars from the set of Apache developers. And, and for that crime of giving away free software, we could lose our homes, right? Because there was no corporate shield to protect the activities of the developers involved in Apache, you know, who would reasonably go and, I mean, if somebody said, I've got a patent claim against something and you have to remove it. Yeah, I mean, the laws are the laws, right? We might fight it if we felt it was a weak patent, but if it wasn't a weak patent, then what else can you do? But without any sort of um, corporate shield around our activities, we all stood the risk of losing our homes or losing our financial cushions or you know other things that just you know would have sucked, right? So that was one motivation for creating it. The second was the project had grown beyond being just about the web server 
pretty early on. There was a module to do Perl, a module to do Java, Tomcat, which is a, a, a and Jakarta kind of you know were were coming in. These were whole new Java code bases uh, coming from Sun and and other uh, other participants asking to get involved in a way that caused us to ask, well, what are we really doing that's um, scalable, right? Or did we, have we tapped into something here or beyond the individual heroics of the people involved? Is there something repeatable that's worth trying to take to more and more software projects? And the answer was kind of yes. You know, I didn't think we were too full of ourselves to say we'd actually found something that was a happy medium between the idealism of the free software movement and the pragmatism of getting, getting code built and embedded inside of large companies' projects. In fact, we didn't even mind the idea of somebody like a Microsoft or an IBM or a Sun ingesting our code and putting it into their commercial products, as long as they didn't, you know, abuse our brand by calling it Apache Plus Plus or Apache Prime or or anything like that, as long as they didn't try to shuffle their support request queue just down upon us, right? And so as long as they followed the license, we were actually enthusiastic about the idea of those vendors coming in uh, on the presumption that it would mean additional development resources as well. And also um, that it would help the idealistic side, you know, if you could really get uh, not just the, the the, the rebels and the indie operators, but the the actual establishment to use open source code, then maybe you get faster to a world where everybody's got printing presses, everybody has that freedom the, that that we all consider essential. So as when thinking about this, we realized uh, that having some sort of corporate structure around us um, that was nonprofit in nature, that was benign, beneficent, universally recognized as a way to be protective rather than exploitative would be the right thing. And that's where started forming as a 501c3 charity made sense and forming it specifically as something that was very much a, a membership-based organization. Now, that's not the only way to do it. There are other approaches. The Linux Foundation, for one, is more of an industrial consortium than a membership-based charity. Mozilla also is a, is a charity, the Mozilla Foundation, but it also does most of its operations through a for-profit, wholly-owned subsidiary called the Mozilla Corporation. So there's all these different models out there, and it's been great to see those grow. And in general, I think if you're doing anything meaningful in open source software, your activities should be parked um, somewhere where there's a protective structure around it that helps answer the the questions and the needs of the broader user community. So, so I'm pretty happy with that approach, uh, and and also happy at the same time to see quite a few foundations out there, new ones showing up all the time. I do still all get to blockchain and open source, but as a way of getting there, as we fast forward today, uh, the Hyperledger Foundation. You've mentioned it. I'm obviously very familiar with it, just having been Tokyo with you. But can you tell our listeners what it is and what its goals are? Because I think there is sometimes some confusion there. Yeah. So three years ago, I, I jumped into this project and it had been announced actually about six months earlier, like December 2015. And uh, the first code drop was February 2016. And, and I kind of joined it in May of 2016. And and so Hyperledger was announced at a time when, you know, the Ethereum community was just getting launched as well. Um, when Bitcoin was was just before its big run up in price, 
when there's a lot of excitement in the blockchain and, and cryptocurrency space. And the emergence of a set of use cases beyond programmable money that can jump across borders easily, that really started to speak to some things that were much harder to otherwise do. I think the one that pulled me in was land titles in emerging markets, where, you know, a distributed database that was not just, you know, here's a master MySQL node and slaves that hang off of it. It's not just, you know, a multi, multi-write kind of system, but, but one that actually supported consensus, one that actually had the network enforcing rules about valid transactions versus invalid transactions, one that was programmable with smart contracts on top. Like this started to make sense to me and was something that was appealing to me in a way that speculative financial instruments, you know, and, and proof of work was not right. And so, so Hyperledger was announced by uh, a set of large companies, uh, along with the Linux Foundation, to try to research this space further and try to figure out the enterprise applications of these technologies. What really, what's possible, you know, and start. Let's start coming up with code that would meet those needs. Um, let's think about uh, uh, what are the different architectures required. Um, and it was bootstrapped with a couple of different um, pieces of code that came. One piece internally that had been developed at IBM, another that had internally been developed at, at Intel. And when I came in, I said, we should try to decide, do we want to be about a single architecture, you know, kind of in the way that the Linux kernel is about a single architecture? Or do we want to be about a basically a portfolio approach of different architectures, different approaches to to, to threading this needle, um, uh, you know, to, to, to solving these use cases and let the market decide, right? And, and over time, if we have a multiple winning solutions, we just kind of weaved them together in some opportunistic way. And uh, the community came back and said, we want the, the latter. So from that point forward, the mission of Hyperledger has been be a home for portfolio of technologies of software that implements distributed ledger and smart contract functionality and kind of like Apache and be have an open door to new projects coming in, but but have um, a more of a thematic focus on those on these on this domain and put more intentional effort into weaving these solutions together over the course of time. Right. So that's what Hyperledger is. It sometimes can seem confusing because we have you know right now 14 different technology initiatives, some of them very mature, like Hyperledger Fabric, some of them still emerging and starting to be used in production environments like uh, Sawtooth and Iroha and Indy and Burrow. Um, some of them just very supportive uh, as tooling like Explorer and, and Composer. Um, and some of them still still very young. But, it, but it's the portfolio overall that is the Hyperledger community, that's the Hyperledger code base. Every actually innovative open source community has this this, this spectrum of different technologies under their wing. Um, and so it's, I think, ultimately the right approach. Our goal long term is if anyone's building distributed ledger systems, they're probably using one or more, or perhaps all, <laughs> of the technologies coming out from Hyperledger. I was at a bed run by The Economist magazine a little while back, and... At that event's keynote, there was this distinction drawn between invention in the sense of new technology, you know, new open source project, for example, and innovation as something broader that can involve things like collaboration, new practices, new types of ecosystems, and so forth. My observation would be that blockchain, of course, does require technology, but also requires a lot of the latter type of innovation. Open source software has shown that you can't really separate the code from the people behind it, and you can't really separate the code from the the zeitgeist of its movement, right? So 
Um, today, whether we trust using using Linux or Apache or or, or any of these pieces, um, sometimes just comes from pure market share. Well, if everyone else is using it, then it can't it can't suck too badly. Um, but I think for that first wave of users and the early adopters to to, to mid adopters, knowing that there's individuals and organizations committed to a body of code is pretty important to deciding whether to use it or not. Code isn't just some uh, a software product isn't just some fixed like point of you know flag in the ground that says here's where we are and get used to it. Software is more like a stream. You know, I, I you know you might decide to use a version of software based not just on what it does today, but on its likelihood of meeting your needs in the future. You probably do, right? Um, uh, and so when people look at using code, they want to see that there's this active community around it that is making regular software releases that is pushing forward on something ambitious, but also answering the very pragmatic and prosaic needs of its end users, you know, that has this, this vector to it that has this, this momentum. So while there's, there, there are lots of companies out there that will be, that are today actually building their own products and services on top of Hyperledger Fabric uh, and other pieces of Hyperledger. I think showing people that there's this this living, breathing core to these projects, and 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 this this you know fountain of, of functionality and bug fixes and that sort of thing, and how they can plug into that is essential to getting that broader adoption. So so we think it's it's equally important to be innovative in terms of new features as it is to actually be showing here's how the community processes and being an open source project actually lends to itself to better quality code and to pe real people's needs being met and and a the entire marketplace actually being effectively served. And of course, if we talk about blockchain specifically, it's also interesting that these permission distributed ledger systems need these new ecosystems of companies cooperating and working together and giving up some level of ownership, really. And there's a lot of good lessons from open source generally in why you have to do that and how you can benefit from doing that. That's right. That's right. I mean, um, at, at any so so any one of these blockchain networks that people are spinning up, um, uh, you, you know, for them to actually have, uh, have any point to being to using blockchain technology, you want them to be decentralized at some point. You want them to not just be all based at a single vendor's cloud domain. You want to actually have nodes that are on different clouds, probably also nodes that are being run by different technology partners, right? Um, or different. Or even in some cases, nodes being run by end user organizations themselves. Because otherwise, why not just use a, a central database run by a single vendor or a single technology partner, right? Uh, and so we've been trying to do a lot to, to work with the cloud community. Right now, there are, um, you know, pretty much every major cloud provider offers Fabric as a managed service, um, uh, which was a nice little milestone to hit this past year. Uh, and in doing that, it helps establish Fabric as a standard in this space. Uh, but it's also important that when you bootstrap a Fabric network, um, that on day one, you're able to add nodes from other cloud providers or, or other places. And so we'll, we're running a, a certification process for cloud providers uh, this year that will help to guarantee to end users that degree of decentralization, that degree of flexibility around their deployment, because we think that's that's important to get out there. And, um, and really, this is just the network services equivalent of the same degree of transposability and flexibility um, and anti-vendor lock-in that 
that people expect when they use open source solutions as well, right? And and so it, it requires the same degree of thinking amongst uh, the technology vendors of how do I reassure my customers that I'm not going to trap them in something vendor specific, and yet I'll still be able to sell them some additional value that you know keeps them as a customer, right? Something that you know Red Hat has been extremely good at for these uh, in the last 20 years that Red Hat's been in existence, or 25 years, I guess at this point. Um, and um, you know, I think it was a, a big part of what what you know Red Hat will be bringing to IBM. Uh, um, but it's something every IT vendor, every enterprise software vendor has to get really good at in in this era. One last topic I'd like to touch on. You know, we look at blockchain generally. Essentially, everything is open source, and we're seeing this in other places too. Cloud Native Computing Foundation, also under the Linux Foundation, pretty much has all of the innovation happening in cloud native computing, at least all of the innovation outside of the big cloud providers, but then they're using the software internally. What do you think the characteristics of these new ecosystems are, these new combinations of technologies and projects and companies they are so defined by open source. There's not just an open source alternative to proprietary software, but really everything happening in those spaces being open source. Why has this happened? I, I, I first want us to be cognizant that it's it's uh, it might feel like open source has one, <laughs> you know, it might feel like Linux has one, that Apache has one, but Linux is still not the dominant operating system out there. It might be by device if you count lots of IoT devices running embedded Linux, that sort of thing. But the mobile phone market and the um, you know laptop computer market and others are you know still very rife with proprietary software, which is fine. I mean, you might take the moral point of view, like Salman does, that that is a that is a problem or you could take the pragmatic point of view which says you know there's as long as we have critical mass then then an open source solution is likely to emerge and is likely to to provide benefits and uh, it's been very reassuring to see that argument playing out not just in operating systems and web servers and databases but but now playing out at the level of uh, or containerizations cloud containerization which is where kubernetes and the cloud native compute foundation has really you know uh, set its mark um, but increasingly in machine learning and AI tools, increasingly in fields as conservative as automotive or telco, um, open source uh, options have started to become, at the very least, industry industry competitive. You know, uh, in the same way Linux is industry competitive, but in some cases just as dominant as say Kubernetes is now in cloud cloud containers. That doesn't mean that that Tesla is going to wake up one day and open source all of their automatic you know, automated driving you know, uh, uh, software or, or their end user interfaces or that sort of thing. But nor do I think that's necessarily a goal for anyone except Tesla car hackers and, and the Tesla user community who I think would love that. But if Tesla were to use more the automotive grade Linux, which is a project at the Linux Foundation of their software for the, the under, underlying communications bus with third-party parts suppliers, more of the, the nav system and voice control stuff that AGL is emerging with, that would certainly complement what I'm sure is a ton of other open open source software that Tesla already is using inside their vehicles um, and maybe make it cheaper for Tesla. Maybe as a result, make it so Tesla cars were less expensive and other electric vehicles were less expensive. But at the end of the day, I think this is about 
companies deciding there there are things that are simply table stakes, right? Things that we all need to do to be able to be in this industry together. And it's much more efficient for us to work together on those common bits of plumbing so that we can spend more money uh, or, or balance more of our investment at the levels above that in creating stuff that's truly featureful for end users and differentiated. And so I think it's an entirely rational, you know, non-idealistic business argument for why we're seeing more and more companies, even the ones we traditionally associate with very proprietary business models, be it Microsoft, be it Uber, be it Facebook, be it Facebook, right? Actually recognizing open source is strategically interesting to them. And that's really, that feels like this uh, continuation of the same thinking on our minds 20 years ago at the Apache Software Foundation that, hey, if we just involved some of these parties in in our projects and, and, and kept to our core principles of how to build software, of how our licenses work, how our dev processes work publicly, yeah, um, if we made them play by our rules, we might still end up in a much better place uh, and, and, and move further faster. And I think, I think that's, that's been the story of the last 20 years. Well, thank you, Brian. I think that's a pretty good way to close out, unless I've missed something. I, not that I can think of. Well, thanks, Brian. Thank you for listening to this episode of Innovate at Open. For future episodes, subscribe to Innovate at Open on your favorite podcast app. You can also go bitmason, B-I-T-M-A-S-O-N, dot blogspot.com for show notes, blogs, and a full archive of episodes and more. Thank you for listening. This is Gordon Half, Technology Evangelist at Red Hat.